great to have you here on the Clark Howard Show. Our mission is to serve you and empower you so you make better financial decisions in your life. I hope you decided to subscribe to our podcast and YouTube channel because, you know, you can watch the video version of our podcast on YouTube or listen to the audio version wherever you find your podcasts. Or you can go to Clark.com slash podcasts. And thank you to everyone. We've gotten some more reviews on Apple Podcasts, which are super helpful. That's wonderful. And for those of you who don't know, that's Krista, who is the COO of our company, oversees our website. I'm your chief Coke Zero getter. Yeah, why don't I have a Coke Zero right now? There's yours. No, I I don't want your Coke Zero. I'm good. I'm good. I have water right now, which is good for me. But... We're here all about your wallets. And there are times that you feel like the advice I give is off the mark, not very good, or just plain dumb. And that's why we have Clark Stinks. And speaking of stinking, have you heard about a Ponzi scheme involving manure? It's a really good lesson for all of us about investing. And now it's time for Clark Stinks. I should have never encouraged you to speak. You must think I'm pretty stupid. You should be ashamed of yourself. Well, maybe I'm wrong. Maybe I'm wrong. Maybe you're right, pal. My favorite podcast is The Clark Howard Show, but I have to say you stunk it up a little on your comments about Washington State's CARES Act, a.k.a. long-term care health care tax. And by the way, Clark, so many people from Washington State wrote in about this. The bill taxes payroll at $0.58 out of every $1,000, which doesn't sound like much. But when you add it up over the lifetime of working, it adds up to a lot of money, which is all well and good. But the program already has a $15 billion shortfall, and the maximum lifetime benefit is only $36,500, which won't cover very much if you end up in a hospital for any length of time. The state is going to have to increase this tax or cut benefits for the program. Please do your research before you comment on this poorly written and poorly implemented bill, Eric. Eric, thank you to you and everyone else. You know, when we were talking about me even bringing this up as a topic on the podcast, we knew it would generate fierce blowback. The reason I talked about it is not specifically that what Washington State is doing is fantastic or terrible or in between. It's the idea that we as a country have unfinished business. We have not come up with any viable workable plan how in an aging society, how we're going to take care of people when they reach a stage of their lives they can no longer take care of themselves. The math in Washington State is designed to reduce ultimately the overall cost to taxpayers in Washington State for people who end up on the state federal Medicaid program for long-term care in a nursing home when they can no longer take care of themselves. It is a first attempt in the country at trying to come up with a way to essentially pre-fund some level of long-term care. It is no doubt what you said in your post and others said in different ways that 
the money being collected by Washington State over somebody's working lifetime is not adequate and not enough to fund a typical person's possible long-term care needs. And it is just that. It is a first attempt. And it's one of those things that I love about having 50 state laboratories. Different states are going to work at this, some more than others, and try to come up with something that works in the culture of that state or works as something that can be replicated from state to state because we must address this. Because otherwise, what happens to these people? You know, we've had a number of posts when I'll talk about something about adult children helping out an aging parent. What happens if you have no kids? What happens if your kids uh, predeceased you? Where's the help going to come from? And this is unfinished business in the United States, how we provide for a steadily graying population, aging population, and how we're going to provide for the needs of people who will need some level of care and assisted living later in life. I actually appreciate you, Clark, so much. I do want to challenge your thinking and choice in one personal area. You speak often about your thriftiness with your clothing, and that's fine. But in a podcast in the last month, you revealed that your wife wishes you'd buy different clothing or allow her to dress you sometimes or something to that effect. While wearing your Costco shirt collection for your program or dressing how you like for everyday wear is fine, why not impress the woman you love, the woman who looks at you by splurging in this area, as you do in some of your pet areas of travel and football, and let her choose some of your clothing for her enjoyment? I winced when you said Lane wishes you would, but you just want to look at the bottom line. Isn't this an area where caring what she'd like would override your desire to spend as little as possible? Food for thought. I hope Lane wins out. You'll both win. Thanks again for everything from a woman who cares about how her husband dresses. And I love when he dresses for me, Judy. Judy, thank you. All right. So I don't know if I've talked about this. I There are a lot of times that I would go out of the house and Lane has always held on the story when some missionaries thought I was homeless. Right. I remember yeah. that. Because a lot of times I dress, um, well, let's say a little too casually and shirts that have holes in them and things like that. And so I did make a deal with my wife that I went out and bought a new casual wardrobe, even like if I'm going to work out that I'm not wearing tattered clothing anymore. She still wants to be able to pick a wardrobe for me. Uh, I'm, I'm not really comfortable with that. I will discuss this with her and tell her, Judy, what you said. And she'll say, see, see, I told you, you need to let me dress you and see if we can come to some kind of accommodation. Okay, lots and lots of Clark Stinks posts from Amazon third-party sellers, and here's one of them. Clark, the Inform Act is a good thing for online sellers and consumers alike. Transparency is always healthy and should be welcomed. However, I think you may have broad-brushed all third-party online sellers as unscrupulous people selling questionable items or without return policies, etc., Yes, there are some unscrupulous sellers out there. For example, Amazon has made a big effort over the last several years to block certain foreign sellers and counterfeit items. But the vast majority of third-party items on Amazon are sourced brand direct or from authorized distributors, no different than how your local Walmart or corner store stocks their shelves. The only difference is fulfillment. Brick and mortar ship to your home. 
And Amazon has very strict regulations for third-party sellers that require invoices to be submitted proving authenticity, chain of custody back to the manufacturer, and compliance with all other terms of service related to expiration dates, item conditions, shipping times, return policy, etc., Fall out of compliance on any of Amazon's many strict selling policies and sellers are quickly removed from the platform. Scott, representing many people. Scott and many other people, thank you. If I made it sound like everybody who sells through Walmart, Amazon, eBay, etc. is third-party sellers or all people selling stolen merchandise, counterfeit merchandise. Trying to rip people off. Trying to rip people off. I apologize if that was the tone and tenor of what I said, what I meant to say is that the reputation of third-party sellers is being hurt by the very people who counterfeit, sell stolen merchandise, all that. And I just saw an eBay ad on TV where they now have a tagline about how they're verifying sellers. I forget how they put it. It is an area that needs some cleaning, but obviously most people that sell third-party goods are honest, decent people just trying to earn a living. You don't stink, and I love what you and your staff do for everyone, but there is one fear you can let go of. When Bill Pay mails a paper check to someone, it doesn't show your routing and account number. The service draws money from your account immediately and sends a check with their routing and account number so you don't have to worry about someone getting that information by stealing the check. You can verify this by sending a payment to a friend. I suggest sending one to Krista for a huge amount. Your positivity is an inspiration to us all, Rafes. I love that idea. Yeah, how how many zeros should be on that check? I mean, as many as you got. (laughs) (laughs) Send it all to you. Thank you for that. I'm going to look because I get a lot of electronic bill pays and I'm going to see if that is in fact the way it plays that it's not your own account number. Uh, The theft of checks in the mail is a huge problem right now. And I was uh, with my son and we were in a shopping center parking lot and there was a, a traditional postal service mailbox in the middle of the parking lot. And I was explaining to him why you never put a check in one of those. And he said, really? And I was like, yep, you never put them in there because of the problem with criminals who have now obtained keys, those postal service keys that open those, and they're rifling through and stealing all the checks, washing them, changing the payee, all that. It's a big, big problem right now. A listener asked for advice about getting a credit card for his son with a small credit limit so he can build credit. I just wanted to add that I added my son to my Amex card and they allowed me to set a limit on his card, which I set at $200. I also got a Discover secured credit card with a $200 security deposit. Both these cards helped build his credit and now his score is in the 800s. Salima. Salima, thank you. And I love that uh, a number of credit unions also allow you if you add a minor child is an authorized user to set a spending limit on that card you've given to the minor child. I'm an emergency medicine doctor. Your opinions and advice are always a little wonky for medicine, and that's okay because we love your money first perspective. And sure, I see the post-Mexico surgery complications about once a month, but prices are prices and it's your body. And then he put hashtag libertarian life. However, I hear of a patient who received 
CPR via plunger instead of standard BLS bystander CPR care, I will be so very upset with you. I need to tell your listeners to do CPR with their hands or a $20,000 machine, but not a plunger. There are no studies comparing use of a plunger to anything, and there never will be because that's dumb and we can't do harmful studies since the 1974 National Research Act. Some more background, if you want it, is that since most recent studies, manual hands-only CPR has never been proven superior to mechanical CPR. See here a randomized controlled study that they don't show the difference. If you read the link to the study cited in the New York Times article, the only change, aside from a Lucas mechanical device, is the head and chest elevation. Maybe that changes the future. I hope it helps with outcomes. But frankly, you read an ad in a newspaper for a Lucas modification device, which is not novel and I've used for nearly 10 years as a doctor. It is not just a plunger. It has a set pushing pressure, lifting pressure, rate, and position. This fancy new thing, the New York Times, is just this device with a headrest and a bag valve mask attached. If you have $20,000 to spend on this, I have a bridge to sell you, Ken. Thank you. And Ken, for people who didn't hear this, and thank you for taking the time to write this as a medical professional. The sad thing is that the survival rate of someone trained in CPR, the patient they're trying to, as a bystander, administer care to, the survival rate without brain damage is very, very small. The New York Times story was about this medical device that allows a bystander who is not trained to attempt to save somebody's life. And it all started 20 years ago with uh, someone taking a plunger and saving someone's life from it. And it led to this device. The article in the New York Times, it was not an ad, it was an article, may have oversold the concept, but the idea is that we're not where we need to be yet at being able as a trained bystander Uh, I have Red Cross certification, you know, and I'm not confident that I would be able to save somebody's life with the training I have and not have them have any brain damage by the time they got to the hospital. This is an area that requires more work. Just as we now have, I'm looking across from our broadcast position, there's an AED machine right across from me. In the event somebody needs an AED, you know, an untrained individual can administer that and it will not let you give a shock if the system doesn't sense that it would be a benefit to someone. We need more technology like that to replace or enhance CPR. But gotcha, Ken. Use your hands. Don't go grab a plunger. Use your hands. I just read the article about the Better Business Bureau. I'm a sales rep and deal with many companies in the service industry for water treatment. In my humble opinion, the only people that use or rely on their on the BBB's ratings are old people. I'd say that most of the people I do business with rely on positive reviews from Google or Yelp, Sid. So Sid saying that the Better Business Bureau just is not in people's consciousness? Yeah, and that it's not, that the ratings don't matter somehow, I think. Okay. All right, thank you. I, I'm not sure, said I really understood what you were trying to say to yeah, me. Yeah, but we, I will say we've had a lot of people tell us they've had great success with contacting the Better Business Bureau when they've had a problem with the business. So we do recommend that a lot. Um, Clark, you were a little ripe when you made it sound like anyone who doesn't take their vacation is crazy. 
We would love a vacation, but I am union and can only take a day here or there as seniority dictates. My wife, on the other hand, has her vacation taken from her when the company shuts down for inventory for two weeks at the end of the year. She is forced to use her vacation then so the company doesn't have to pay unemployment. We haven't had a vacation together in over 10 years, not because we are workaholics, but because we simply aren't allowed to. Keep up the good advice on everything else, Bill. Bill. My goodness, not being able ever to take a vacation together, that is just cruel of employers that they decide that vacation can only be taken when it's to their convenience and not for their employees. Eventually, that leads to resentment and burnout. Okay, Clark, you stink worse than your favorite NFL team, but not as bad as mine, the Panthers. As a longtime Costco member, I have found that the shopping experience at Sam's is far superior for the following reasons. One, Sam's Scan and Go eliminates the need to wait in a long checkout or trying to lift 20 pounds of cases of water at the self-checkout. Two, Sam's rewards can be used immediately at Costco. You have to wait an entire year to receive their rewards. And three, back to self-checkout, Sam's has hand scanners if you don't use the Scan and Go feature, while Costco requires you to take everything out of your cart and scan them. Sam's prices and the selection are equivalent to the treasure hunt, and shopping can be completed in half the time. One man's opinion, Jack. Jack, thank you. Sam's has made a lot of great improvements in the store. Scan and Go is fantastic. You're not a Sam's member, so you haven't experienced it. Okay, this thing is just great. You pull out your phone, go to the Sam's app, You click scan and go, and as you're shopping, you scan the items that you want to buy. You can verify that the price that you think it's going to be is what it is. And when you're done, you let's say you decide to put something back, you just remove it. When you're done, you just click, you purchase, and it puts a um, bullseye on your phone. You go straight to where they check that you're not shoplifting anything, and you're out the door. It is fantastic. If you use self-checkout at Sam's, they've got the pricing guns. So you don't have to lug the bottle of water up to the scanner. I don't know why Costco has not at least done that because Sam's is much, much more user-friendly if you want to do self-service options. No doubt, 100% true. I'm a member of both warehouse clubs. I should say I was a member at request of our podcast listeners and viewers. I did join BJ's Wholesale Club. I found that I did not use it sufficiently, and I did let my membership expire at BJ's Wholesale Club. So I'm back to being a two-warehouse club guy, Sam's and Costco. And so I don't have the knowledge base on the third regional club on BJ's Wholesale. Coming up next, I want to talk about people trying to steal your money and what you need to look out for, what you need to watch out for to protect your wallet. A while back, I told you about the man who was charged with running a con game, a Ponzi scheme, promoting a method of taking cow manure to create energy. And at the time, I had to say alleged. Now the man has been convicted. 
Raymond Brewer is now going to prison for six years. I hope that it's a program where he can work on a farm and shovel cow manure for the next six years because he stole roughly $9 million from people who believed his pitch that he had this design, this technological breakthrough, and was going to be able to take the cow manure and create energy. So this isn't really about him. And it's not about cow manure, but it's about how much it stinks with this mass movement for private placement investments. Congress did something in a deregulatory vein that unfortunately is not worked out as intended. The idea was that when people were trying to organize smaller businesses but needed outside investors, that they, as long as they stayed below certain thresholds, they didn't have to provide disclosure of actual real information about the organization. They could just use sales literature, commission salespeople, and sales techniques to sell people shares, investments in the enterprise. And this was a green light for con artists. And so you need to know when you are being pitched any kind of investment in a what's known as a private placement, it's not traded on the New York Stock Exchange or any other stock exchange. It's not something you can buy today, sell later today, or sell tomorrow, whatever. It's not a publicly traded stock that you are not going to get the normal disclosures. I think about during the uh, heyday of real estate investing, how we were getting question after question after question about private placement real estate organizations and how many people have lost their money in them. You know, all I kept saying when I was getting those questions was about how expensive they were with all the costs that were put on you as an investor. I didn't even think about the angle that people were going into things, they would just lose all their money or that your money's frozen in them. Know that because of this bad combo of no proper required disclosures and the fact that your money is completely illiquid, meaning you put it in and you have no clear path to ever get your money back out, that when somebody starts pitching you on this wonderful opportunity, you're not going to know, is it a scam? Is it a bad choice? Is it really expensive to be in? Or the last, even if it is legit, but just expensive to be in, how hard is it to get your money out? The headlines go to the Ponzi's, the people that are smooth talkers, who are sociopaths, They know the difference between right and wrong. They don't care, but they come and take your money. The thing is, whenever you are pitched any private placement, if it's not a family member or friend who you've known forever, you know what it's all about, you know that 
what they've got, an operating business, they're trying to grow it, and you decide you want to invest, no, you could still lose all your money that way. The key is private placements are dangerous. And when do I want you to do them? I don't want you to do them. And, you know, you could be being pitched this by someone who's not a sociopath and believes the story too. So don't think that. Well, that's why the last thing I said, it could be legit, but you still could lose your money. Right, right, right. Right. Donna in Georgia says, can a car dealership make you buy add-ons? I have been to four different dealerships and they are all adding about $4,000 in add-ons that I don't want after they receive the cars from the manufacturer. They say I don't have a choice. So Donna, what's happened is going back to the supply chain disruptions and shortages of vehicles that went on heavily in 21 and 22, bad habits developed at a lot of automakers, dealers, and they've been pushing through mandatory options and what are known in the lingo of the trade as PACs, junk fees they add on, they say, take it or leave it. Because if you don't buy it, I got 12 other people that'll buy it. So what's happening is this is Wiley Coyote who's running off the cliff after the roadrunner and doesn't realize that suddenly there's nothing but a thousand foot drop there. The available supply of vehicles on dealer lots is going up, up, and up. And discounts are starting to reappear. I don't know what brand this was, but there's still a problem at Honda and Toyota dealers. Honda and Toyota particularly are short, still short of inventory, and a lot of their dealers are still behaving badly. This was Honda dealerships. This was Honda. So the experiences people are having are changing. I was talking to a gentleman the other day in the Costco parking lot <laughs> who else? had a Ford Maverick pickup truck. And we had had a lot of stories from people about they tried to buy Ford Maverick pickup trucks and the dealers were marking them up like 10000 or so dollars. And I asked him what he did and he traveled a thousand miles. He bought a ticket one way, went to a dealer in Pennsylvania, bought the Maverick at MSRP, no junk fees, and drove it the thousand miles back home. With the Honda you're interested in, Go out of market, shop dealers elsewhere. You can look at inventory all over the place, try different zip codes. And if you find a dealer playing it straight on the Honda you want and not charging $4,000 in packs, junk fees, then just make the deal, make sure you got a solid deal, get on a plane, one-way plane flights are really cheap in the United States, fly there, get the vehicle, drive it home. Save the nearly $4,000. Suzanne in California says, my husband and I are empty nesters. We are considering downsizing to a smaller house or a condo. I understand you moved to a condo fairly recently. I would love to know how you feel about that move and the change from a house to a condo. We've never had HOA fees, and this would be a consideration as we're both seniors. Thanks for your feedback. So, Suzanne, I love living in a condo. To me, it's like living in a big hotel room. You lock the door and you go. You don't have to worry about all the stuff that I had to worry about in a house. But one thing you do need to worry about up front is whatever condo community you're thinking of buying in, 
You need to have access to their financials. You need to know what reserves they have. Do they have a clear, honest, legitimate five-year plan? Like, what are they collecting to deal with maintenance issues that will occur over time? Because the time bomb in a condo is when you get hit with a giant special assessment because the board is not doing good planning and under collecting each month, which is basically a tax, the condo fee, and then they don't have enough money in reserves when the roof needs repairing or replacing or various common elements need proper maintenance or updating or whatever. And so you want to know how financially strong the condo is is one of the core things. But living in a condo, I love it. Now, if my wife was here and you asked her, I don't know how many times a week she says, I miss our house. I miss our house. I miss our house, which I loved, but I don't miss that house at all. Chris in Hawaii says, my wife and I are federal workers who have amassed over $2 million investing in index funds. Wow. Wow. Good for you. Our jobs take us to different places every few years. So we haven't purchased real estate and don't really know where we would want to settle down after retirement because we're in our late thirties, early forties with many more years to work. Our return on investment has been so great with the stock market and has given us a lot of liquidity, but we have thought about purchasing real estate in a vacation area such as Hawaii. Real estate is pricey though, so we've looked at condotels and fractional ownership in a resort, which is more affordable. What are your thoughts on these types of real estate purchases? Are they a good investment or do folks typically regret these types of purchases? Thank you for all the great advice you give to all of us listeners. You're a national treasure. Chris. Mark Howard, National Treasure. So, Chris, the condo tell fractional ownership stuff, they're not investments. They are a spending on lifestyle in a different way than just taking a vacation. The reality is, at your ages, you got a lot of time in front of you. I don't know when you're planning on retiring, late 30s, early 40s, but I would not buy even though you've set yourself up in a financial way to go ahead and do it. I would not buy a vacation home unless there's an area that you specifically love. You would spend a meaningful time each year at that place through the decades that you continue to work. And it would be a place that you would enjoy now so much of the year and then be your place later in life otherwise if it's just like we're buying it we have it and ultimately it'd be our dream home wouldn't do that now because your needs your wants your desires where you might want to live that kind of thing will change over the decades but if it's a place that you would use currently while you're in your working career use it uh, a decent amount of time each year maybe rent it out the rest of the time you've set yourself up financially to do that and you can go for it and i want to thank you so much for being with us today i hope you have an absolutely fantastic weekend